Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast of Morning Shots with me, Byron, and my co-host, Ramon. We are going to talk to you about our road trip, which we did last week. Hello, Ramon. Hello, everyone. Uh, you've uh, recovered? Uh, yeah, sort of. I'm a bit ill. But uh, sorry, we didn't have a podcast last week because we were between Aberdeen, Beaufort West, and Slaterville. If any of you can point to those on the map, I'll be you very smart because I couldn't before this particular road trip. So yeah, we're going to really record on the road, so we are doing it uh, today, which is a Monday. So apologies for last week, we are catching up in this particular episode. And the road trip had two main goals. Number one, go visit Orania, and number two, go visit Beaufort West and the Central Crew District, where Gaten McKenzie is the mayor. And we successfully did both, and we're going to talk about it in this particular podcast. So first of all, don't go for Orania. Rather, don't go to Aranya because it's very far from like absolutely everywhere on purpose and it's a more late to get there. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Aranya was placed where it was placed because no one wanted to live there. Literally in the Northern Cape, in a municipality that everybody deserted and it became a ghost town. So the actual government said to the people of Aranya or the people that wanted to take Aranya, yeah, you can have a free just like do something with it because we can't just have this rundown shithole where everything's just decays. Clearly, they're thinking of Joburg. But uh, that all being said, they uh, they overtook this municipality. There was nothing there, hardly even a municipality, no real running water, no real roads, no nothing. And obviously, they created Orania, which they then declared to be a semi-autonomous zone, kind of. And that's that's a a, question, a point in itself. So. The people of Oranya obviously resurrected the town that had died. And as Ramon and I drove around that area, we did wonder like how many of these municipalities there might be. I mean, the whole place is pretty desolate, right? Yeah, and, and when you drive through the Karoo, you can see towns that, you know, exist as a shell but have been neglected over the last 30 years thanks to ANC rule. And you wonder to yourself, why can't we just take over this place and just like make it our own? I mean, this is what they did, and they explained that they have a fairly unique situation in terms of the municipality basically belongs to them, so they can accrue revenue and they can pass bylaws. But it's a very unique thing that they have there, which is not replaceable or can't be used in other municipalities. They've got a high court interdict to to make them rather unique. But at the end of the day, it's a wonderful idea to actually just take something that's sort of existing take it over completely and build a private town. That's essentially what Aranya is. Yeah, so if you actually look at Aranya as a whole, so we, we discussed with them quite a lot as to how they actually came up with the status. So Aranya actually isn't a, how should we say, a separate entity or a separate municipality. It's actually a private-owned business. And so everybody that lives in Aranya kind of lives there in accordance with a share block. So what that is, they basically become a shareholding or a shareholder of the company. Now, the company itself owns Orania, and the people that live in it are basically, if you will, residents of the company. Now, the bylaws that they're passing aren't typically bylaws. They're actually like company resolutions. So they will vote on it as a board, and then they'll say, like, obviously, as shareholders, or the people will vote on something, they'll say, that's going to be the rules in accordance with the Companies Act. And lo and behold, they have figured out a mechanism in order to create bylaws effectively they do the exact same thing though with for a number of other things so they don't have a police force as such what they do have is they have a sura registered company that basically provides security services akin to basically the police force so what they're doing is they're using all the private instruments to create private entities that will then provide the services because Orania as a company if they want to expand then like all companies what they do is they just buy the next town over, right? I mean, they just expand the shareholding. They do corporate takeovers. So you'll see that Orania originally started off with 800 hectares of land, and then obviously as farms came available up for sale next to them, they just bought them, amalgamated the land into Orania as a whole, and now it's like 15,000 hectares. So it's a, it's a fairly sizable place. So uh, let's talk about impressions when you arrive. So unfortunately, we arrive at night because Byron's car is very slow, and there was a treacherous dirt road. <laughs> So, my car's not slow. It's a three. It's a three-liter car, but it's low profile. So actually, the first point is when all the ANC caters have to go to Orania. Obviously, they're also all driving low-profile cars, sports cars, and such. That road is not 
for that kind of area. Now, you can imagine that at some point in time, they went to municipal workers and they were like, guys, we're going to tar this road. And then they got halfway through tarring and then some guy's like, eh, where's this road actually going? And somebody said, Orania. They were like, ah, fuck this shit. And they just went home because that's actually what happens. 20 miles into the, or 20 kilometers into an 80 kilometer track, brand new tar, lovely. And then it just stops and it's just dirt track for another 60, 60 something kilometers. It's really bizarre. Yeah, I mean, if you had a proper car, we would get there. But anyway, so getting there is very difficult. So we arrived at night, we drove around, you can't see anything at night. Uh, and then we found our Airbnb, we settled in. The guy says, here are the keys to the Airbnb, but he hasn't locked it in 20 years, so we don't have to either. He's not sure if the lock works. <laughs> yeah, that is true, he did say that. And then we went off to meet Uist. So Uist is the head of the Orania movement. I think he's like a media liaison slash marketing guy at Orania. We had dinner with him. He explained it, how Orania works. And the first thing you notice is uh, there are actually black people there. We saw three of them on the very first night. <laughs> I mean, one of them was a journalist and a few others were, I think, courier company guys who were delivering something. But there's no gate. There's no wall. There's no, like, yeah. obstacle to people just going in. It's literally like you're driving into a normal town. Yeah, we made the comment, didn't we? I mean, it's like you kind of get there and you almost, in your brain, you want there to be this like massive wall and like a moat around it. And then a big, a big like section with a guard going, you shall not pass if you are not white. But like nothing like that. And it's actually kind of disappointing in that the main road runs straight through the town and the traffic on that main road for the mining company that's transporting mining goods. Man, that, that road is busy. Like really busy. It is. It is really busy. But really, I mean, the next day when we finally woke up and met a few people, we spoke to the leader of the Orania movement. We walked around town. We got a tour. We spoke to other people who are developing the solar projects. And overall, the town of Orania is, A, quite clean. Number two, a bit desolate. Like it's a bit far from everywhere and you can, you can feel it. But number three, and most importantly, I've never met more optimistic people in South Africa. Like, you can go there and talk about Julius Malema, and it's like, oh, yeah, he was here in 2014. We spoke to him, and we never saw him again. But then and he, he left. Uh, and he left us alone. The concept of, like, the day-to-day -day political goings-on of South Africa. It seems like they mm -hmm. ignore it on purpose. Well, why should they care? Because they're entirely self-sufficient. They're actually a self-sufficient community. They're everything that we discuss in our podcast all the time. They have actually found a way to make what we discuss work. And because of that, they don't give two craps. I mean, they're like, ah, oh, you know, South Africa goes to shit. Like, how does that affect us? So we've got our own energy, we've got our own water, we've got our own universities. They've got their own farms. They got, they're just building an airport. They've got their own airport. Like, so they don't care. They're like, they've got their own factories. They're trying to build stuff in factories. They're like, look, they're connected to South Africa. You know, they can't, they can't ignore the fact that, you know, they're in South Africa. But by and large, they are not affected by South Africa. So they're also trying to get their own currency, the aura. And they're trying to kind of get to themselves to a point where even if the rand collapses, they're like, eh, who cares? You know, like it's got nothing to do with us. And as a result, when you talk to the average Oranian, they're not sitting there going, oh, but you know, what if something happens? Maybe I should hedge my bets and go to Australia because it's terrible here. There's no real kind of carrot responses because they have a sense of their own destiny and they feel that they have control over that destiny. Oh, quite. So we spoke to Henny, who's a tour operator there. So he drove us around for like an hour and a half. And we said, like, which people come here? He's like, no, it's mostly like poor Afrikaners, working class Afrikaners who want yeah. to, to move here. And then he mentioned the fact that he's got like 10 people moving in from overseas. So Afrikaners people who moved to England and Australia and New Zealand who are actually trying to get into Oranya, so they're buying property there. They are trying to be vetted to live there. And we found that very, very interesting. So you have a little oasis of people who want to come back from overseas, which is something that we support, of course, on this particular show. So in terms of actually getting into Oranya, we saw a house for sale, and we jokingly said, oh, can we buy that one? He's like, no, you can't. If you want to buy anything, you have to be vetted by the Oranya, I don't know what it is, council or something like that. And there's only three things you need to really have to be a member or a resident of Aronia. Number one, you must speak Afrikaans very well. So on that basis, we fail. Number two, you must have you must be a Christian. 
So on that basis, we don't fail. And number three, as far as I know, there's like a sort of examination of your knowledge of Afrikaans history, like who the important people are, what the Afrikaners achieved in South Africa, uh, what wars they fought for, what purposes. Yeah, who are they? Et cetera. And most it wasn't just it wasn't just knowledge, mate. They said it was it was kind of knowledge, but it was a an appreciation of and a link to Afrikaans history. Yeah. So it's like you can't ju- you can't just be a guy who's like I don't know studied textbook uh, Afrikaans. Like you need to have a link to Afrikaner history, and if you can kind of satisfy those three criteria, like you're away. However, it's really important to understand that that's like going for a job interview and they say you need a degree to apply. Yeah. Like this was the entry applications. What actually had to happen is once you had passed the interview in Afrikaans, which we failed, and once you went out there and, you know, you, you had your appreciation of Afrikaans history and you had a link to Afrikaans, which we failed, then you obviously need to have like a form of Christianity, Dutch reform, basically. If you can satisfy those things, then they push you to the next round, which is actually meeting the community. So the community have a really active part in getting you there. So the community have the final say. If the community don't like you, you can have match all of that, and they'll just be like, "Sorry, man, you just you just don't fit." And I suppose because they said the problem they have is that what they don't want is they they have people that kind of like pretend to have all these things. You know, they they like speak fluent Afrikaans and then pretend to go to church and something they never do, and pretend to have this like four hundred year history to Afrikaans, and it's like nothing there. You know, they came from Belgium or something, and they they were very clear that that they would be able to pick it up on like the community just by speaking to them getting the average kind of understanding and then even if you pass the should we say the vetting criteria like if the community puts a like a barrier and just says no, no, this guy's this guy's going to cause disharmony to the community that you still don't pass yeah and funny enough it's not it's not only based on, on those things so there is a german couple who live there it took them six years to learn afrikaans like i think the guy was a german war veteran or something like that he was tired of germany he wanted to live in orania they said no they said these are the criteria. This is the criteria to live in Orania. And so he learned Afrikaans over the course of six years. And he actually managed to get through and become a resident of Orania all these years later. So they're not, it's not like completely ethno-nationalist in a way. Like they're quite welcoming to people who take on all the best characteristics of Afrikanerdom, so to speak. And those people are, are able to, to live and work in Orania quite well. Yeah, so it was quite interesting that they didn't just have that. They also had some German people that came there and started up a distillery. They actually set up a brewery there, which is now obviously creating some of the the alcohol for the Oranians. So as you can see, they're not really ethno, how should we say, ethno-purist. They're not really going, oh, let's check out the the white melatonin in the skin here, which actually kind of pushes away the narrative that Orania is a whites-only town. I don't really think it is a whites only town. I think it's a it's an Afrikaner only town. But by its definition of its entry criteria, let's let's be honest, it's kind of only really applies to white people, right? But that's not the core basis of what it was set up as. I mean, when you ask people why was Aranya set up, it's like, ow, oh, white people, white people want apartheid. It's like actually not. What they are is they Afrikaners wanting Afrikaans history and heritage, and they're trying to preserve that. And that comes with a degree of, well, any white people of cons. It's kind of like saying, you know, I want to preserve 15th century British people. Mm, those just white people, maybe. Like, there were no Asians or blacks or anything like that in England in the 15th century. So it's it just is pure definition, nothing more. Yeah, but it's like something that's being part of the Zulu monarchy, right? What do you have to be to be the Zulu king or prince? Zulu? Zulu blood and primogeniture, I suspect. So the fact that you need yep. those three characteristics, you will obviously be a black Zulu person. I don't see Johnny Clegg becoming the prince of Zululand. Well, shame, he's passed away, but you know what I mean. Um, so it makes perfect sense for Aranya to be a, a white-only town, but only if you're a moron. Like, if you understand what Aranya is about, it's about the preservation of African culture uh, in a way that's sort of non-state-like, which is something that we approve of dramatically and, and therefore we think it should continue without any fear or favor as our politicians like to say absolutely so obviously they did say to us in Oranya that you know a number of the major politicians have actually gone there to see the town and what they usually find when they hit the town is that the town is actually kind of desolate as in it's not 
you intend you typically expect to see just opulence right you expect to see like Oppenheimer's living there and so everybody's like living in a mansion with you know 50 servants or something and that is not actually what you you find what you actually find is like a 1985 version of an apartheid suburb you know and I don't mean that just to be like oh you know security guards going no blacks like it's it's basically just a suburb from apartheid just like imagine going to 1985 imagine the architecture imagine the way the houses are created imagine you know, lots of trees everywhere with kind of like a very distinctly middle class and maybe even lower to middle class suburb and home. It's what you find. You don't find these massive, huge mansions with marble everywhere. Like that's in your brain. That's what you think. Oh, that's what I'm going to find. But what you distinctly find is just a middle, lower to middle class suburb. It's nothing more than that. And for me, Ramon, there was a little degree of, I don't know, let down in that. I was hoping to see, like, I don't know, Chatsworth, well, Chatsworth style luxury or something. Well, you're not, you're not alone because apparently, according to the the people that hosted us in Aronia, the politicians come through all the time and they, and they just deflate when they see how working slash middle class Aronia actually is. There is actually no wealth to like really expropriate. These houses, these houses could be seen anywhere from Boxburg to the outskirts of PE to any t- small town around South Africa. These are not. It's not Dane City, right? It's not Danefern. It's not Paul Pearl Valley. It's, as you said, it's a suburb from 1985. So imagine Randburg without any walls. It's very similar to that. That's what Aronia really felt like. The difference is we do see like white children walking around, which was quite nice. We do see children walking around without a, you know, gear in the world. <clears throat> and secondly, everyone bloody waved at you. My shoulder is still sore because I had to wave back. Yeah. Like, everyone waves when you walk public friendly when you drive past them everyone waves and after a while i'm like i feel like the queen of england here because i never wave <laughs> in our place veronia they force you which is not bad yeah, it's not that they force you it's just everyone's so bloody polite you know like you've got to constantly walk around like Hello. like after a while your face just gets like really numb from like trying to be polite and it's, I suppose in, in one respect, it's kind of nice, you know, that everybody has this kind of community feel. And as they say, you know, that community feel is pushed forward into, should we say, the actual genetic makeup of, you know, the, the suburbs. And that if your neighbors, their house is looking a little bit run down, like everybody expects the community to get out there and basically paint your house for you, uplift the community. It's not just like moan at you and be like, hey, go get a, go get a black dude, a manual laborer to come paint your house. Because in Aronia, that's that's not allowed. Like you have to do your work yourself. So, you know that if you, how could you get a community to do forms of uplift in a positive way if everybody wasn't super friendly and you know like yeah. your your kids are my kids. It, it really kind of there's an old African saying, Ramon. I'm sure you've heard it heard it be said, and that is it takes a village to raise a child. And it's amazing because in most African villages, most children don't know who their parents are. So. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what, maybe that's the thing. But Naranya is a genuine village raising the kids and it's a genuine village all looking after each other, which leads a lot of the politicians that go there to walk away going, aha, look, everybody, it's proper socialism in action. When you tell that to the Oranians, they start laughing and they're like, yeah, whatever. But it's not. Yeah, it's deeply non-ideological, I found, other than the sort of criteria for being a resident. But overall, it's about do it yourself, raise money yourself to build X, Y, Z that helps the community in some way. Like that's really it uh, at the end of the day. There's nothing more, nothing less. What was interesting though, and something I didn't expect was that they're, they're building an industrial zone uh, at the top of the town, which we drove through. And this is like heavy duty proper stuff, right? Like steel manufacturing, um, gym equipment, like proper stuff, not, not like... Yeah, playing. all that sort of stuff. It's not like small-time manufacturing. Okay, they're not building cars for Ford or something like that, sure, but proper factories made, like proper warehouses that, that are there. And you see anyone from bricklaying to filling up the car to sweeping the streets, everyone's a white male. Yeah. It's strange, so, but good. So so we asked Joost about this, and Joost actually explained it very well to us. And he said, look, the problem with the apartheid was actually that in the latter ends of apartheid, when it died, the 
impression was that all the Afrikaners would be the Basi and all the blacks would be the manual laborers. And he was like, this was never going to work. It was kind of like having a priestly class. Yeah. And the priestly class eventually had to be overthrown. And he says what they actually tended to forget is that at the turn of the century, when South Africa was first founded, the Afrikaners were the laborers. And so they actually had to go around and create stuff. But it's like as time went on and as wealth happened and the Afrikaners got more entrenched, they stopped being laborers and they all wanted to be passies. And that in turn had an impact on the jobs that the Afrikaners wanted to do. They wanted to typically be the manager. They wanted to be you know, desk workers. They didn't actually want to be manual laborers. And they, you know, you, as you just described to us, and we had a good chuckle about this in the car over many hours driving, and that is, it's very interesting actually to see in South Africa, you know, you'll get a typical Western Cape Karen, and the Western Cape Karen will say to you, you know, oh, my house is dirty, let me get a domestic worker. My garden needs cutting, oh, let me go get a, you know, garden service. And you'll say to said Karen, but, Mrs. Karen, why don't you just clean your house yourself and mow your own lawn? She's like, oh, no, I don't do that. Like, no, that's that's domestic person's work. But then said Karen goes, oh, I regard it's terrible. And go to Australia and clean their own house and mow their own lawn. But it's okay there because there they're not, you know, it's like, it's not a, it's fine there. But in South Africa, no, no, that's not my people's work. So Aranya takes a very dim view of that. Their, their view is that if you want your yard cuts or you want your home cleaned, do it your bloody self. Like, you're not going to come here and hire other whiteies or black people or anybody. Like, you must do the work yourself. And to a large degree, they feel that there's almost a degree of, like, religious purity in that. You know, it, it refines character. The work refines character. So they, they're very keen for people to go there and, well, be middle-class workers, really. Yeah, and also, if you want a service provider, it has to be within the, the, the community. So there's like four or five estate agents, or three or four, I can't remember. I think there were like seven or eight construction firms. All the shops are owned by locals as well. Uh, we went to the supermarket, went to various coffee shops. There is a person we spoke to who has like multiple businesses that owns and controls all those businesses as well. And really, you do find that any service provider is literally like two kilometers away from you at most. Yeah. So I can assume the service quality is actually really high as well. Yeah. But again, right, this is all in an effort to create trust, right? You need, you can't just find someone over the street to do your electrical work. You need to vet them in some way. And what Oranya does is vet them through community action. Because if you're in a small community and you fuck up a job, everyone's going to know about it, right? And they're going to be aware yeah. of it. Maybe not drive you out of town, but they wouldn't trust you. With well, I think in that community, they probably wouldn't, mate. Well, no, I didn't feel any sort of hostility whatsoever. And for those saying, "Oh, you," because they driven everybody out of town, <laughs> so everybody that was left was happy. <laughs> whatever, whatever. And for those saying, "Oh, but you white," of course you were like Garanya. I hate to break it to you guys, but we weren't like trusted there. Okay, like the people we spoke to were very polite and kind, but like the waitresses were a bit weird. They saw our cameras; they thought maybe we were journos coming to talk about diversity or some bullshit like that. But we were like welcome with open arms. By the people we agreed to see, yes, absolutely. But like the ordinary Iranians, they wave, but they weren't, they were a little bit suspicious of us if they didn't know who we were. Yeah, a few people kind of stopped and looked at us like, hey, we don't like your kind around here. And your kind was like journos and non-Africans what people. Well, yeah, they never said it directly, but you could feel like a bit of suspicion. They don't know who you Even when... Even when I went to go order in the cafe, you know, like I went to go order us coffees, the lady was like, ah, non-Africana, what do you want? You know, like, why are you here? It wasn't like, oh, look, it's a black dude, get out. It was actually like, we're whiteies. And they were like, nah, like you're non-Africana, you're ordering in English, like, what do you want? So you, you get a distinct, like, their community is their community, their people are their people, you know? I tell you what did shock me is that for such a small town, man, they had a fuckload of bloody universities everywhere. I mean, they had like two universities, a varsity, two primary schools, two art schools. Like, they were really big on education. And you know what shocked me even more? Despite all that education, no, no diversity studies. Not interested in diversity studies here. No gender studies. No DER departments. Like, none of that bullshit. You know the only subjects you can really study in Oranya? 
useful ones, as in bricklaying, engineering, like chartered accountants, like become a doctor, proper veterinarian, agriculture, proper, proper subjects. Not like geography, but proper subjects. And it was really interesting to see that because they, they were like, we need our people to be useful to the community. So we give them the opportunities to study things that are useful to a community. But it's very interesting that when you take that approach, how many subjects you can kind of with the university roster just start like deleting. Huh? Yeah. And that's what they've done. And how much cheaper it is. Uh, but a big push is towards the Technicon stuff, right? Like the bricklaying, the, the plumbing, the electricity stuff. Because these people ultimately will serve the, the community in some way in time to come, and you need to, your, your local skills to do that. So, just in closing on this particular point, um, Byron, will you ever move to Aranya, assuming you can get it? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the times, Ramon, we hear in the podcast and even on YouTube where we make comments or videos, like everybody goes, Ah, oh, I want to immigrate South Africa for the future of my kids. Because, you know, the future is just so terrible as South Africa. How's they going to get a proper education? And the answer is fucking Arania. Right? So if your kids actually grow up and you need to send them to a proper school to get a proper trade, mate, Arania is the place to go for a good education. With that being said, you should really kind of look at that in the future and be like, actually, my kid has a safe haven in the country and it's far closer to you than fucking Australia. Would I move to Arania? And I will say this with the utmost respect to the Oranian people who were all very lovely and hospitable. No, I would not. I do not fit the demographic. I do. I am not one of their people, no matter how much I try to be. And out of respect to the community, I would not try to force myself on them. I'm not one of them. I respect what they do, but unfortunately what they do is not me. It's not lawyer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm exactly the same. So we, we walked around, we felt very comfortable, very safe, all the rest of it. I, I wouldn't live there either. It, it's not my culture. I'm not a Protestant. I'm not an that's reformed. I, I don't do labor skills. Like I'm, we do like sort of professional stuff in terms of job descriptions, you and I. I don't think we would fit in. We would fit in in some sense, like, but it would be like going into a community that will probably accept you in time to come, but it's not something that I long for. I, I have no. the most respect for what they're trying to build, but I'm just not part of those plans, and that's perfectly fine with me. Absolutely, and I feel the exact same way. I have 100% respect for what they do, but, you know, we're content creators, man. Like, we're, we're white-collar workers. They don't want white-collar workers. They want laborers. You know, they want actual, proper, useful people. Not use, not useless people like us, right? I mean, exactly. what are we going to do? Sit there and be lawyers. They're like, oh, fuck off. You know, can you plumb, a, can you plumb the house? And we're like, no, but we can employ one. Like, ah, it doesn't fit in with their culture. So, 100% respect for what Aranya does. Very fascinating. I walked away with, with a lot of insight as to their ideology and their mode of thinking, their optimism was infectious. Like I would have loved to have had that optimism in, I don't know, PE where I live. But, and I wish that more people had that degree of optimism of, ah, fuck it, you know, the country's going to ship, but we can shape our own destiny. We don't need the country for anything. I, I would, I would love that. And actually the one comment I will say, having walked away from there, is it did cause me to self-reflect on how many people have left the country and how many of those people were basically giant carrots. That was actually the the big takeaway for me. All the guys that leave, they're all like fucking carrots. Because the people that actually want to graft were right there in Lorania. Exactly. These were people that were prepared to work. Exactly. I mean, they're all white people, of course, right? And yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree. So I, I will be glad to go back to Lorania in time to come make more content there if should they accept us if we um if if we are allowed to go back of course but overall very pleasant experience quite quite surprised at how much they've done i wasn't aware they were so far ahead of, of the rest of the country it's not just a small dusty town with nothing happening it's actually quite sophisticated in some way and overall i think yeah i think it has a great future a better future than Joburg, for example so kudos mm -hmm. to them absolutely yeah. So let's move on to the next topic, which is we went to go see Mr. McKenzie, the gangster of South Africa. No, that was a that was a digital experience. Come now. 
allegedly. Wow. Helen Helen says he's a, a, a gangster, and Helen would never be carnish in her response, would she? So here's the thing about Gates and McKenzie. I never met him before. As soon as we as we arrived and we met him at the Wimpy at 8 a.m. in the morning, as soon as we sat down with him, like immediate comfort. I was like, yeah, this guy's just, just it's not one of us, but he's like, yeah, he's just cool. Like he is exactly who he is. It was just this this overt confidence in who he is and what he says and how he behaves. Nothing staged, no media training, no nothing. The guy is just a normal, straightforward colored political leader and that was so refreshing like so refreshing first impressions on your side yeah so the first impressions on my side was and you know we said this to mr mckenzie when we were there with him, but you and i both have extensive experience in this kind of political arena we do this as living this is like what we do right we talk to politicians all the time we read the news all the time so we're we're professionals in this area we get very used to seeing bullshit, huh? Like, you know, that's what we do for a living, right? We make YouTube videos every day decoding the bullshit in the news. We like we read something, we're like, ah, this is actually what they're trying to say to you, but they don't really want to say it, right? And so you get used to seeing people with media training. You know, why do I say X when I really mean Y? That's well, a kind of a media type response, right? Political response. And, you know, one of the reasons that Donald Trump overthrew the let's call it the media class is because he didn't actually come with that training came out directly he was like oh don't piss me off because i'll nuke your country to oblivion and then i'll piss on the ashes and people didn't like that because they're like that's not a very political way to deal with it you know it should be like oh there's a diplomatic way to deal with this but if force is required we will consider our options like he didn't have that approach he was very forceful and Ken mckenzie had the same like there was no media training there you know the guy you the guy you got was the guy he was there was there was no ifs or buts and it's because of that that you can see why, should we say, the professional politicians struggle to deal with the guy. Because in many respects, he is the South African Donald Trump. He doesn't have that, should we say, that political filter. You know that filter where it takes like spewing stuff and then it puts it into a political way that kind of sanitizes it and then you're left with the message. He doesn't well, have yeah, that. Yeah, like, like you know, like the average politician just feeds you like public opinion-based polling answers to to questions that you really want to know. Like, what is the huge mm -hmm. problem with X, Y, Z? Well, he has an answer for you. That just doesn't happen with Gates and McKenzie. So, so based on that, we I felt immediately comfortable with them. It felt like I'd known him for a lot longer than an hour. And then we sat down for an interview, uh, which will be released on this channel on Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday of this week. And the interview was just like the best thing ever. <laughs> We asked him all the questions we wanted, no notes, no nothing, just answered straight from the gut. And guys, he's one of us. He is one of us, like straight from the bat. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people have a lot to say about the guy. You know, he's like, "Ah, oh, he's a mobster." He's like, "Yeah, I'm a mobster. I was a mobster. I'm a reformed guy now." But that doesn't mean that I'm just, you know, suddenly destroying my character. My character is who I am. You know, he's not, and he actually said, he gave us a great example of it. And I will paraphrase, this isn't the example he gave, but it's like when Musi Maimani talks. When Musi Maimani talks, he's like, hello, I'm Musi Maimani, and I'm very posh. And then when he takes an interview, he's like, eh, I'm Musi Maimani, I come from the township. And you're like, mate, you don't talk like that. What is this all about? And he's, because he's trying to make himself relatable to the masses. Like, ah, I'm, I'm one of you. But Musi ain't that guy, man. Like, you hear him talk normally, and you can tell he's putting on this really thick accent to make himself look more African. And Gason was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pretend to be somebody who I am. I came from I came from the suburbs. I came from gangster's paradise. I was raised in those areas. I'm not suddenly going to put on a fancy suit and pretend that I'm a Rothschild. He's like, that's not who I am. I don't want to betray who I am. But that doesn't mean... I'm still a gangster going around shooting people. He says, I feel I am a reformed person. He found Christ in, in, church, in prison. He came out. He feels that he reformed himself. He turned himself into a legitimate businessman. And he wants to pay back the country that made him very successful. and gave him a second chance. And so it's because of that that he feels that he wants to be in politics. 
Helen and the rest of them will be like, yeah, but this gangster, you know, clearly he must be after the grift, right? I mean, what else would a gangster want? And he's like, look, I did come from being a gangster. That's the point. But that's not why I'm here. He's like, I have enough money to go, you know, live in some shithole like Australia. Like, just, I want to make a positive effort. I want to do something positive for South Africa. He's like, just give me a chance. And interestingly enough, he then wanted to show us, like, what had he done in his municipality where he had been given a chance for 12 months. Yeah, so we followed him around the whole day. I think we drove like three, 400 Ks that day looking around it. Because the Central Crew municipality is like huge. It's massive. It's like hundreds of kilometers in, uh, not diameter, in square, square kilometers. So we, we drove around quite a lot. It's not just the town of Burford West, which has its own mayor. He's the mayor over the district. So we went and we went to to some 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 I don't know what you call it like a cluster of houses about 100 k's away from Burford West, and he showed us the water tank right that had asbestos in it. People were getting sick from drinking this water, so he built a new water tank and we filled it. Then we actually asked the people. Gayton wasn't with us when we were talking to people. We asked them like, is their life better now? Yeah, the pit toilets that eradicated in this place. It was all there. I saw that there was news over the weekend that Gaten lied about all the stuff. I mean, maybe, but who am I going to believe? The News Africa or my own lying eyes? I saw stuff being fixed. I saw stuff that was built. I saw, and I spoke to the people who lived there. and said, well, did you have a toilet last year? No. Do you have one now? Yes. Is it working? Yes. Is life better than last year? Yes. We did proper journalism in this regard. We did do it. And I mean, you know, it was very interesting because we also then spoke to some of the Karens of the town. We were like, ah, what do you think of Gaten? They're like, no, he's doing things, but you know, is he doing enough? And you're like, right, okay, so what exactly is he not doing? They're like, well, you know, I still have that pothole outside of my home. And he's like, he came into a municipality, specifically in the Western Cape. There's like this presumption you go into a municipality, the municipality's got like 40 million, 50 million in the bank account for projects. He's like, no, nah. he got there on day one. He said, right, guys, what's my budget? And they were like, nothing. You're actually in the red. This municipality is overdrawn. And he's like, crap. So how do I fix anything when the budget's overdrawn? So he had to immediately on day one go out there and basically fire everyone, you know, because he found all these guys. Like he said to us, there's swimming pools there that they closed the swimming pool down like 24 months ago. No swimming pool for two years, but the lifeguard was still on the payroll earning 15K a month Well. A swimming pool that doesn't exist anymore. And he's like, the the waste in the municipality was huge. Now, for those of you who don't know, you can't just go into some place and fire people, right? I mean, first of all, there's CCMA issues, there's labor issues, there's labor unions. Like, it's a fart and a half to do this. And that's just to balance your accounts before you have a surplus in order to go out there and fix things. So he's he's tried to go around and fix what he can, but also try to remember, he's, he's got a limited budget. I mean, it's not like he's, got masses and masses and masses amounts of money now what he could do is he could take the the page out of the asses mayor of Joburg and borrow on the city and then basically fix everything based on credit and then you know maybe they'll just pay the interest because that's apparently how loans work and over time he actually said well actually he, he thought about it but then he was like no because what he didn't want to do is reburden the city with financial debt that it couldn't pay so he was like let's do this the proper way let's raise the finances and start doing things like eradicating pit toilets. Has he eradicated every pit toilet in in that municipality? No idea. Really haven't got a clue. But you know, he said to us very clearly, he didn't go there to turn everybody in the municipality into a millionaire, and he wasn't going to promise that. And we respected that, because what he did say is, all I want them to do is to say, if I started at position one today, that when you leave, Mr. Mayor, you're at position two. I don't need you to be at position 100. Your life just needs to be better today than it was yesterday. He says, in a large amount of ANC municipalities, and in some instances, even DA municipalities, so most certainly EFF municipalities, they always start off at position 1 when they start in the takeover, and by the time they leave, you're at position minus 20. Like, things don't go forward, they go backwards. So what he said is all he wanted was that there was some form of progress. And so... Every question that we asked, whenever we saw a guy, the question was always the same. Right, Gaten's not here anymore. 
you know, the money's off, Capra. Like, just tell us, is your life better today than it was yesterday? And the answer was a resounding yes. And we spoke to, what, 12, 15 people that day, I think? Yeah, we saw a lot of people. Saw a lot of them. Uh, and, and yeah. Including the Karen. Yes. Which Mr. McKenzie didn't even know. And she was like, yeah, it is better. But I'm worried about, like, longevity and, you know, that pothole, eh? Yeah, and, and another thing that we noticed was, okay, so it was weird for us. We were in a convoy with, with, with Gates, and he's got like 10 guys around him at all, at all times. And then the mayor of Burford West like meets us and opens up the pools to show us like what's been done in them, showed us like the sports complex where there's like a, a fancy gym. Amazon was very fancy. Fancy gym, huge pool, um, in outdoor soccer court or something like that. I don't know what you call it. But at the end of the day, they, you could see that there were things happening you go to a lot of other towns and you can see like the pool was full 20 years ago but now it's no longer full or it's decrepit here i'm not saying the pool was like olympic level brilliant but it was a functioning two of them functioning pools like there was water in the one the other one was empty because there's a drought and it's winter no one's swimming but there was nothing decrepit about burford west it seems to no. be like functioning. And that's, that's a market change from the other towns we drove on the way to get there. Absolutely. So, you know, we looked at this pool as well, right? So we went there, we saw this pool. It is an Olympic-style pool, so it's very deep and very long. And the interesting part about that is that whilst it's an Olympic-style pool, and as Ramon said, you know, there was a gym there, there was some stuff there, the reason this became important was that when the ANC were there, they basically just abandoned the building. Now, we've seen that in a number of municipalities around the country, right? The ANC can't look after certain things, they're just abandoned. And over time, it gets looted, the doors get stolen off it, the pool gets stripped, and I don't know, people start using the, the, the pool as a giant toilet. And the world's largest pit toilet, you know, gets created. And this, this isn't a new story. We've seen it loads of places. So when he got a place that had been left and abandoned by the, the ANC back to operational status, doesn't mean that it's like world-class status and the Springboks now want to go train there. No. But remember what he said. He said he wanted to leave the place better off than it was yesterday. So what he did is he took something that was abandoned yesterday and he put it back into operational status. That is a marketable improvement. Does that mean that the place is like spotless and perfect and belongs like in the hearts of Cape Town? No, because that municipality does not have that budget. And to a large degree, this actually then translates into something else that we noticed in that municipality a lot. And that was, mate, there was no dirt everywhere. Like the roads were clean. Yeah, a distinct lack of littering. And we spoke to him about this on camera, which you'll see in the vlog. And he says, no, it's... It's, it's one of the most important things, like the small broken window theory, right? You, you fix what you can, small things. But most importantly, if you want to build something, it needs to be a, a clean area, especially a town, right? Because it, 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 like when you have a road trip and you drive through a town, you can, we drove through a lot of towns on the way there and the way back. We're, like, we're not stopping here because it looks like a shithole. But if it was, did not, right? It looks a bit old. There are buildings that need painting and there's like a pothole or two. Sure, I get that. But it's, there's no litter. For the most part, the main roads are clean. I'm not going to eat off the roads. That's not the yeah. point. But it's clean. As cleaner than it was when I went, drove past there like two years ago on my way to Cape Town. So yeah. things are definitely happening. I mean, this notion that Katie has done nothing is, is complete bullshit. Yeah. Complete nonsense. So, you know, one of the things that you find when you drive through the Karoo, and for those of you who have never done it, I mean, look, it's a bloody long drive. And, you know, you can drive for hours and hours and hours and see four court. Just, you know, a sheep and two cows and a shitload of fields on and on and on and on on a straight road. Like, it's seriously, it reminded me of the American Outbacks. So for those of you who are like, ah, South Africa has nothing to offer. Like, we have the same terrain with some of the U.S. Like, long, straight roads going to nowhere. But the Karoo has a distinct feeling of towns that time forgot. You know, like you walk in there and you can see there's like colonial buildings everywhere. They probably were fantastic in the day. Like they would have looked beautiful, you know, when the horse and carriage was going over there. But did anything actually get built since those days? Like no, nothing got built, including not even a road in some places. It's still like dirt roads. So 
you get this distinct feeling of a lack of investments in those areas. Now, one of the things that I'm pretty sure everybody who listens to our podcast is very familiar with, this takes somewhere like Amtata. Drive through any town in Amtata, and it doesn't just look like it's a town that town forgot. It looks like a town that God forgot, and so did the dump trucks, because the dump, the rubbish is just still packed up on the side of the road in heaps. Like everywhere's a plastic packet, everywhere's chicken bones, and you name it, KFC wrappers, and everything else. It just looks dirty and untidy, like the town became the local dump. You did not have that in that municipality, right? Yeah. I mean, Gateson's municipality was clean. That, no packets, no nothing. That's fair. Like, you need like-for-like like comparisons, right? So we drove yeah. through Aberdeen, which wasn't looking good at all. We drove through other other towns on the way there, which weren't looking good. I mean, if you drive through a lot of the free states and the Eastern Cape, you go through, like, Middleburg or uh, Aliwell North, I think it's called. We drove through that as well. Like, the towns don't look nice. Like, you can see the litter everywhere. Perfect West was different. There was a market difference, and the first thing was it was cleaner than Joburg, mate. Well, yeah, it was definitely cleaner than than Joburg. So, I mean, overall, let's face it. I think you've done good good work in in Central Karoo. Let's see what you can do at a sort of national level come twenty twenty four. He did say that the PA is going to get close to like a million, a million and a half votes, which is like ten percent yeah. of the votes. Uh, at a national election, which is huge, which is why he'll be kingmaker, as we said so in a video previously. So really, the only question, the final question to you, Byron, is could you vote for the man? So, you know, Ramon, we talked about this a lot in the car, and there's very few times that you can be with a politician and just be like, you know what, like, this guy's extreme, but he's one of us. Like, you know, there's this notion, and we hear this sometimes from EFF, like fanatics, right? And they always talk about Juju being my president, my man. And we're always like, you know, I don't know what you're smoking, but it's, you know, my nothing. But actually, I kind of think I get it now, right? I mean, the guy was just our guy. He was just, he sounded like us. We we often sit and talk about politics. Like, what would you do if you got like the ability to change self-defense rules? And we come out with like some crazy shit and we're like, ha ha ha, nobody would ever say that in the political environment. Mate, the guy said it. He He's a politician who basically repeated our lines and we're like, based. You know, we always say this when we interview people, like it doesn't matter if you have the best policy in the world, just have a freaking policy, even if you're not going to implement it. And quite often you find that with political leaders, they just don't have a policy. They don't have an opinion because they have that opinion. You know, that opinion, the the opinion you think that needs to be said on camera because that's the right thing to say. Like, no, this guy actually had an opinion. And his opinions were our opinions. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, we actually just asked him where he lies politically and he's like, far right. <laughs> Without hesitation, that's what he said. Spoiler alert for those who are still listening. That's part of my interview with him in time to come. But uh, overall, it's the first... How can I explain this? So I don't normally vote. I voted for myself. In 2019, uh, thanks to the Capitalist Party, I think I did vote for the DA in the last local election, and then I voted for the Freedom Run Plus as well. There were two votes in the national or, or local, I can't remember. I voted for either one of those. Uh, but this time, can my vote go to the PA? And I'm going to say with a resounding yes. I think it really can. It's a political party that has the real hard structure. It does have like a strong leader in terms of Gaten, but it lacks that professional corporatized feel, which has good or bad sides to it. Um, but overall, I was very impressed with, with, with Gaten spending the day with him, spending the day with his team, who were the funniest people we've ever met by a large margin. And the, the whole thing was, it's almost like we were at a, at a bri with new friends, and then by the time we left, we were like good friends. And that's what it felt like. And when you spoke, you spoke openly. You didn't have to worry about what you said or anything like that. So overall, yeah, I think I could vote for them. I think I could. Vote. I need to see the policy documents and things like that just to make sure. But I think they could. I could very well vote for them without sort of hesitation. I think. Uh, I think that overall, the the press treatment that the PA are going to get is not going to be favourable at all. It's not going to be favourable because the type of 
party that the PA is. Like we said, Gator McKenzie's Gator McKenzie is basically the Donald Trump of South Africa. You can't ever say the media were fair to Donald, right? And to be frank, I don't think the, the media are ever going to be fair to Gator. However, whilst the media are going to sit there talking rubbish, only the retards who believe what the media says will sit there basically repeating the tried and tested lines. Oh, he's a gangster. He's there to steal. And I don't know, whatever else. But for the rest of us, if you actually give the guy the time of day and listen to what he's got to say, I think you'll be relatively surprised that you do walk away feeling like he's genuinely likable. He's not likable because he's polished. He's not likable because he's like got a PhD and talks in a posh British accent. You know, he's likable because he's just relatable. He is just one of us. And there is a degree of refreshingness in this. He's not like Juju who pretends to be one of us but sits in, you know, Gucci Armani. The, guy, the guy's like a multimillionaire. He's got diamond mines, but he rocked up to our interview in a bloody Springbok shirt. What? Don't know. And there were lots of people even on Twitter trolling you, Ramon, going, no, this is apparently all it takes to con the white people just wear a Springbok shirt. As a person who don't really like the Springboks that much, I don't give a shit about whether or not he had a Springbok shirt. But you saw it in his pants, right? He had like normal jogging pants and some, you know, normal shoes. Like, the guy didn't feel the need to pitch up and be like, check out my Rolex. Check out my custom-made, you know, alpaca suit. He's just, he just rocked up to show us his work and fuck off and go home. And it was, as I say, it was refreshing just to see a guy pitch for work, do his stuff, go home. Because he loves the, he loves his job. He loves doing what he does. He's not there for the graft because he's already got his money. So what does he need more money for? Just open another mine if you want some more cash. He's actually genuinely there because he cares for his cause. Can we say that about a lot of politicians? I don't think so. Eh? Yeah, I don't think so either. And he understands the, the key rule about politics. It's all about power. Once you have power, you can change stuff. Without power, you will just be a bystander. You'll just be a bystander in the future of South Africa. So he wants power at all costs. Uh, he'll prefer to do it with uh, the opposition coalition, should they accept him. Hopefully they do in time to come. But we actually have a quite, I think we, we see a great future for the PA and Gates and McKenzie. I wouldn't be surprised if he was president. There's a long shot of that, of course. But I wouldn't be surprised to, to see him climb to be a, a quite a dominant figure in South African politics in time to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with that being said, folks, thanks very much for joining uh, the podcast. Sorry, it's very late. Uh, obviously, I'm sure you'll forgive us. We were traveling all of last week. I think we did like nearly 10,000 kilometers in bloody one week, man. We drove everywhere. We went from Eastern Cape to Northern Cape to Southern Cape to Western Cape to, oh, God, God knows where. So we were in the car a long time. Uh, even when we were driving around with Mr. McKenzie, he drove us like nearly 2,000 kilometers to show us all the width, the breadth of his uh, his area. It was It was a pretty intense area. With that being said, thank you very much for joining us. For those of you who haven't already subscribed, please remember that if you join us on Substack, you can actually watch this podcast in video. For the rest of you, thank you very much for your time, and we look forward to seeing you during the week. Check in for our videos on Orania, and check in for the interviews with Mr. McKenzie. Thanks, everyone. Cheers.